so tonight what I wanted to do with you is, I hope it came through in the description, is an Agadah, Talmudic story that appears in the Talmud Yerushalmi, the Talmud of the Land of Israel. And the story is actually about Elisha ben Avuya, the famous heretic or apostate made famous in our own time, more or less, in the last century by as a driven leaf. And the stories about him appear in both Talmuds, but in the particular story we'll do from the Talmud Yerushalmi, at the critical moment in the story, Rabbi Meir, who is the disciple of Elisha ben Avuya, declaims a verse from the Book of Ruth, interprets that verse, and enacts that verse. We'll look at the story in a minute, but I just wanted to kind of highlight how unusual it is. People recite verses all the time in the Talmud and in Talmudic stories, and as we'll see in a minute, verses get recited all over the time and interpreted all over the place within this story. But the notion of reciting a verse, interpreting a verse, and enacting the verse, that combination is very unusual. And also when Rabbi Meir states this verse, he's not kind of quoting it, he's speaking it. Right? There's a difference, right? Quoting a verse means, as it says in the book of Exodus, and then you quote the verse in the book of Exodus. As opposed to speaking a verse, which is where you take a verse which is spoken by a biblical character and you speak the verse as if you are speaking it, right? And that's what happens in our story. So Rabbi Meir actually speaks a biblical verse, interprets it, and enacts it at the critical moment in our story. And before I hand out the story, I just want to say the verse that he speaks and enacts is the verse, you have this, I think you all have a Megillah, from the third chapter of the book of Ruth, where Ruth has gone to the threshing floor at Naomi's instruction, lay down beside Boaz, Boaz wakes up, asks who she is, and she says, I am Ruth, your handmaid, and this is in chapter 3, verse 9, I am Ruth, your handmaid, and she asks him to spread out his garment over her because he is the Redeemer, and he responds to her in several verses, but the verse that's going to be quoted here is verse 13, where he says, Lini halayla, stay the night, he has just told her that there's a redeemer who is closer, has a closer kin relationship than he does. So he says, stay the night and in the morning, if the other guy will redeem you, great, let him redeem you. But if he doesn't choose to redeem you, but if he does not choose to redeem you, then I myself will redeem you as God lives language of an oath, lie here till the morning. So that's the verse that we'll get to in a bit that is both a kind of a critical juncture in the Book of Ruth and as we'll see as a critical juncture in the story. So what I want to do is read the story with you and then read it through. We'll do a little skipping of some parentheticals in the story, some of which we may have time to get back to or not, but you're more than welcome first to take the story home with you and read the rest of it on your own. It's a great story. But what I'm going to suggest after we kind of read the story and, and get down the, the plot, so we'll just kind of read it straight through it first, what I want to suggest is that my understanding of the story is that it's actually based in many ways on the Book of Ruth, that it is in some way kind of retelling that story or elements of that story with different characters, and that's what I want to kind of work through with you, and that through trying to understand the story in relation to the Book of Ruth, you actually end up getting new insights into both the story and the Book of Ruth, and we won't get to all that tonight, but we'll try to get as far as we can get. So I'm actually going to read an ad libra translation from the Hebrew. It should be pretty close to the English because I translated it, but it may, it may differ in some details. Rabbi Meir have a yativ darash the Beit Midrasha de Tiberia. Rabbi Meir was sitting and teaching in the Beit Midrash, the study hall of Tiberias. Avar Elisha Rabbe, Rachiv al-Susia b'yom shubta. Elisha, his master, passed by, riding on a horse, Atun 
They came and said to him, Behold, your master is outside. Rabbi Meir stopped his teaching and he went out to meet Elisha ben Amarle. So Elisha says to Rabbi Meir, What were you expounding today? And Rabbi Meir responds, a verse from the book of Job, This is toward the end of the book of Job. Of course, at the beginning of the book, Job loses his family and possessions. And at the end of the book, it says, God blessed the end of Eov more than his beginning. The thing is that the word me reshito, that mem. Okay, now in the verse, God blessed the end of Job, me, his beginning. That mem, right, can be interpreted different ways. Preposition that can be interpreted different ways. And that will be at the heart of the discussion that follows. So Elisha said to Rabbi Meir, and what did you say about that verse? And perfect. And Rabbi Meir says, well, I expounded it in relation to the verse that comes just before it in the book of Job. By Yosef Hashem et that God granted Job, right, gave Job double what he had had before. Shekafalo et kolmobono, right, he doubled all of his property. So the way he's interpreting the verse is that God blessed the end of Eov, may more than his beginning. That's his interpretation of the men. To which Elisha says to him, Woe to those who are lost and can no longer be found. That is not the way Akiva, your master, used to expound this verse. Rather, the way he expounded that God blessed the end of Eov, may his beginning, is that in the merit of the mitzvot and good deeds that he had in his hand from his beginning, he got blessed at the end. So may reshito from the beginning. Right? In the merit of what he had at the beginning is why he was blessed at the end. And then Elisha turns to Rabbi Meir and he says, and what else were you expounding today? And Rabbi Meir says, a verse from Ecclesiastes, from Kohelet, Tov acharit davar may reshito. You can see where this is going. Right? The end of a thing is better, may, let's say in preposition, it's beginning. And Elisha says, and what did you say about that verse? And he said, well, it's like a person who had children when he was young and the children died and then he had children again when he was older and those children survived. That's an example of the end is better, may, from the beginning, better than the beginning. Or a person who made a lot of money in business when he was young and he lost all that money but made more money, he made money again when he was older and that, and he kept that money. That's another example of the end of the thing is better than its beginning. Or a person who learned Torah when he was young and he forgot all that Torah, and he learned again when he was older, and that remained with him. Another example of the end of the thing is better than the beginning. Which Elisha says, Woe to those who are lost and cannot be found. Akiva, your master, lo That is not the way Akiva, your master, interpreted this verse. Rather, how did he interpret the end of a thing is good, may from, or may, right, its beginning? He interpreted that the end of the thing is good as long as it was good from the beginning. It can only be good if it was good from the beginning. And then Elisha goes on and he says, And actually, that's what happened to me. That's my story. And then he does kind of a flashback where he tells his story, which is why you can see it's kind of indented here. He tells about his own beginnings. And he says, Avuya Abba, my father Avuya was was one of the great people of Jerusalem. On the day that came time to circumcise me, he invited all of the great people of Jerusalem 
and he put them all in one house, and he put Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yoshua in a different house. After people had ate, had eaten and drunk, they started clapping and dancing. So Rabbi Eliezer said to Rabbi Yeshua, While they're occupying themselves with their stuff, singing and dancing, we're going to occupy ourselves with our stuff. So they sat and they engaged in words of Torah. Min ha-Torah le-Nevi'im, min ha-Nevi'im le-Ketuvim, and from the Torah they moved on to the Prophets, and from the Prophets they moved on to the Writings. They had a lot of time. V'yarda esh min ha-Shamayim v'hikifa otam, and a fire came down from the heavens and surrounded them. Amar lahem Avuya, so Avuya, the father of Elisha ben Avuya, said to them, Robotai, ma batam nisofet beti Allah? You trying to burn down my house? Amrulos, Rabbi Elias, and Rabbi Yeshua said to him, Chas v'shalom, God forbid, so they said, no, that's not what's going on. The house isn't going to burn down. Rather, we were sitting and reviewing words of Torah from the Torah to the prophets, from the prophets to the writings. And the words of Torah were as joyful as when they were given from Sinai. Sinai, And so the fire was lapping at them as the fire lapped at the mountain at Sinai. Wasn't it true that at Sinai, when the words of Torah were given, they were given in fire? Quoting a verse from Deuteronomy that the mountain was burning with fire to the heart of the heavens. So Avuya, the father of this baby, Avuya said, in Torah, so he says, if this is the power of Torah, if this child survives, I dedicate him to Torah. And then Elisha concludes the story, because his intention was not for the sake of heaven. Therefore, the Torah was not sustained in that person, referring to himself in the third person. And after this story that he tells, he goes back and continues to talk to Rabbi Meir about what he was expounding in the Beit Midrash. He says to him, Uma havita darash tuvan. And what else were you expounding in the Beit Midrash? And Rabbi Meir says to him, again quoting a verse from Eov, Lo yarchena zahav uzpukhik. This is kind of a poem in chapter 28 of Job, which is talking about wisdom. It says wisdom cannot be valued, that even gold and crystal cannot match the value of wisdom. So Elisha says, what did you say about that verse? And, and Rabbi Meir says, and that Torah is as difficult to acquire as vessels of gold and as easy to lose as vessels of glass or crystal. But, but just as vessels of gold or glass, if they break, you can fix them and make them into the same vessels that they were before. So too, a Torah scholar who forgot his learning can lachzor and return and learn his Torah just as at the beginning. At which point, Elisha says to Rabbi Meir, Dayecha Meir Adkant Chum Shabbat. Enough, Meir. This is the Sabbath boundary. And on Shabbat, you're only allowed to travel a certain distance from the outskirts of your town. And it turns out we didn't actually know this necessarily when we started reading the story, but it turns out 
that all along, Alicia has been continuing to ride on his horse, and Mamumir has been following him. And he says, stop right here, right? This is the Shabbat Valley. So Rabbi Meir says to him, Minhen atyada, how do you know that? And Elisha says to him, Min because I was counting the hoofbeats of my horse, and I could tell that we had advanced 2,000 cubits, which is the Shabbat boundary. To which Rabbi Meir says to him, You have all this wisdom, and you do not return. And Elisha says, Let anayachil. I can't. I can't return. Rabbi Mary says, Lama, why not? And Elisha says, Because once upon a time, I was passing by the place of the Holy of Holies, riding on my horse on Yom Kippur that fell on Shabbat. And I heard a heavenly voice coming out from the place of the Holy of Holies saying, Shuvu Banim. Quotation from the book of Jeremiah, Shuvu Banim Shuvavim, and return you wayward children. Everybody is welcome to return, except for Elisha Ben Avuya, who knew my power and yet rebelled against me. So I like to see this story as coming in two acts, and this is the first act. And you know it's the first act because, if you just look ahead for a second, you see the next section is indented. The narrator actually takes a step back and asks some questions. We're actually going to skip that. We have time, we'll get back to it. And this is actually a narrative technique which appears in some other rabbinic narratives, which is kind of like an intermission. I imagine this is kind of the curtain closing on the first act. And when it opens again, it's a different time and a different place. But it closes at a very dramatic moment and it leaves you with that thought. And then the narrator kind of asks a few questions and discusses a few things. And then after a while, it opens again and continues the story, as I said, at a different time and a different place. So I'll pause just for one second for a question, then we'll continue. Yeah. Okay, so you have all this wisdom and will not, as a that return. Return. Right. Right? So that doesn't mean physically come back, even though you're at that time. We'll talk about that. Okay. So but that's, you're picking up on be, something. We're supposed to be confused about that. Well, you're supposed to notice what you noticed, right? Which is, does it mean physically return? Does it mean return to Torah, to the world you were in? Or does it mean both? Okay, so hold that thought. So we're going to continue. We're going to skip the indented part and continue with La'achar Yamim after some time. La'achar Yamim Chala Elisha. After a while, Elisha became ill. Atun va'amrun Rabbi Meir harab chambayish. So they came and they told Rabbi Meir, behold, your master is ill. So Rabbi Meir went, wanting to visit him, and he saw that he was in fact very sick. Rabbi Meir says to Elisha, Let at chazar bacha, will you not return? Where will you not return? And Elisha says, And if somebody returns or tries to return, is that person accepted? To which Rabbi Meir says, Doesn't it say, quoting from Psalm 90, Doesn't it say, Tashev enosh ad daka? is a verse which Rabbi Meir is interpreting in a way that is not the shot of the verse. Right? This is a verse that we say Shabbat morning, Psalm 90, is Tefillah Lemosha Isha Elohim. And in the context of the psalm, what the verse means, right, it talks about the mortality of people. And this people are like grass that withers after time. And what the verse means in the, in the simple meaning in its context is that you return people to nothingness. And you say, Shuvu B'nei Adam, right? and you say, return, human beings, meaning return to the dust, turn people back into dust, right? That's what it means in the context of the psalm, but Rabbi Meir is going to interpret it differently. Tashev enosh ad and you say, Shuvu B'nei Adam, 
he understands this is ad v'chutuchah shel nefesh until the soul is how do I translate it in English? Sorry, right until the how do I translate it? Until they accept the crushing of life. Is that what I said? Yes. They right. They accept right. They accept. And though he said, is one accepted if one seeks to return? Right? And he says, right. They accept it until the crushing out of life, meaning until you die, right, you're still able to return. Right. The verse continues, shuvu bnei adam, which again in the context of the psalm means return, return to dust. But the way he's interpreting it is until that very last moment, God still welcomes you, shuvu, return, in the sense of do shuvu, right, return. So that's how he's interpreting the verse here. At that moment, Elisha cried and he died. Rabbi Meir rejoiced in his heart and he said, It seems to me that my master died in the process of doing tshuva, the process of repent. After they buried Elisha, Fire came down from the heavens and burnt his grave. <coughs> so they came and they said to Rabbi Meir, Behold, the grave of your master is burning. <laughs> so Rabbi Meir went seeking to visit the grave of his master and he saw that in fact it was burning. <laughs> what did he do? <laughs> he took off his garment and he spread it over him. He spread it over Elisha, meaning he spread it over Elisha's burning grave. And he said, and this is where he recites the verse from the book. He said, Lini halayla, stay the night. Lini ba'olam hazeh shodomeh lelayla. Stay or rest in this world which is like night. The hayava boker, and it will be in the morning, says this refers to the world to come, which is completely like morning. Imi galeh. Now here's how he's going to reread the verse. In the book of Ruth, it means if the other guy, the other redeemer, right, the person who's close, who has a closer kin relationship with you, if he redeems you, tov, that's good, let him redeem you. But that's not how Rabbi Meir is reciting this verse. He recites it this way. If the good one will redeem you, let him redeem you. Who is that referring to? This refers to the Blessed Holy One, who is good. How do we know that God is good? This is another verse, Dichtiv, and this is a verse from Psalm 145, which we know as Ashrei. As it says, Tov Hashem lakol, v'rachamav akol ma'asam. God is good to all, and God's compassion extends to all of God's creations. And now back to the Ruth verse, V'im lo yachpoz l'ga'olech, but if he refuses, if he declines, he does not choose to redeem you, who? If God right, does not choose to redeem you, then I myself will redeem you as God lives, and the fire subsided. Now, there's two sort of appendices to the story that we're not going to read right now. Again, if we have a chance, we'll get back to it. If not, take it home and read it yourself. But we're actually going to pause here for our purposes because it's a long story and we have um, a lot. So before we talk about the story, is there anything that's just unclear about what happened? Yeah. So, And where he says, you know, you have to turn back because this is the Sabbath boundary, right? And Rabbi Mary says, 
why won't you return? You have all this wisdom, why won't you return? Right. And he says, I can't, right? Because I heard this heavenly voice and I was riding near the Kodesh Kodeshim, the Holy of Holies, on a horse, on Yom Kippur, which was also on Shabbat, and I heard a voice that said, return my children, except for Alicia Benoit. Okay. Are you talking about the next? Okay. On his deathbed? Are you talking about on his deathbed? Yes. On his deathbed. Okay. Oh, right, right. Right. Yes. Got it. That's one. Great question. Yeah. Yeah. Why wasn't that for heavens? Exactly. What was going on there? Yeah, that's a great question. It's not so, right. So you're talking about in the flashback when Alicia is talking about his own story and says, because my father's intention was not for the sake of heaven, that's why Torah was not sustained in me. And that's not 100% clear to me, right? It could be that he imagines that his father is just interested in the glory, right? Wow, it's so amazing, it's so powerful, look how special people who have Torah are, but not really interested in a higher purpose. Sounds like it's something like that. I'm not 100% clear, but that's, that would be my, my best guess about that. Yeah. But again, the difference between, well, there's, there's Russia throughout, right? There's expounding verses throughout. Right? So in the first part of the story, right, there's a citation and explication of three different verses, right? Competing explications of three different verses. Then at the beginning of the second act, at the deathbed scene, right, yet again, right, a verse is cited and explicated. But in that final scene, right, when the Ruth verse is cited, right, so I was making two points about it. One is that it's not just quoted, right, as it says in the Book of Psalms, as it says in the Book of Job, but rather he is speaking the words that Boaz is speaking in the Book of Ruth. In other words, he, in a sense, is, is enacting the story by entering, becoming the speaker right, of words that are spoken by a character in the other story, right? A and B, he's enacting it. What do I mean by he's enacting it? What does he do here? He takes his garment and puts it over the grave. Now, when Boaz says these words, stay the night, he says it in response to Ruth's request to spread your garment over your handmaiden. So he's doing the act that Ruth asks Boaz to do, spreading his garment over this person who is in need of redemption. And at the same time, speaking the words spoken by the character in the book of Ruth, who is offering to be redeemer. Right? So he speaks those words, which essentially is enacting what Boaz both does and says, as well as interpreting it to be relevant to this situation. And that's quite different from, what did you say? Oh, I said this. What did you interpret? Oh, I interpreted that. Okay? It's coming the actor in another story as you're doing the story. I don't know of any other case, actually, where this happens. Any other clarifications of what's going on in the story before we talk more about the the ideas, yeah. It's interesting at the, at the end of the first act where he hears from behind the curtain or there's a heavenly voice saying that it will turn. It's actually kind of an interesting reaction to this part. For a man who is certainly a great mind, a constant rebel, like, oh, okay, that doesn't feel like personality. You mean, why doesn't he say, well, God doesn't want me to return, but I'm going to do it anyway? Right, so. Remind me to get back to that, but you're already getting into like the meat of the story, which we will do in a second. I just want to know, are there any other just comprehension questions? Like, I didn't understand what was going on. Sorry? When he's on his deathbed, yeah. what does he say that causes his to then be The fact that he cries. The fact that he cries. Just that he cries. Right? Allows Vermeer to think that he... And possibly the fact that he even asked. He didn't say, oh, I can return. He said, he's ready to ask you a question. Oh, can one really return? Is that really possible? Which is different from, 
Right, different from the end of the first act where he says, no, God said, shuvu, return, except for me. Here he's saying, can you return? And notice it's the same word, right? Shuvu, shuvu banim shovavim, right? Return, wayward children, which is the verse that he heard. Right? At the end of the first act, it has that same word, shuvu, as the, the verse that Rabbi Meir is quoting. Right? The verse from the psalm, return, b'nei adam. So one possibility is the fact he's asking at all, and then in response to what Rabbi Meir says, he cries, so and Rabbi Meir interprets that as, in fact, he is trying or in fact has, has done that truth. Yeah. That's where it says uh, in the Rabbi Meir Yeah. He said that that was sick. Yeah, it's more than I sick. Did, it means sick and dying. Sick. Oh, it, it, means on, it means it's on his deathbed. Oh, sick. Right. This is kind of a stock thing in rabbinic narrative. Somebody comes and says somebody is sick and it means usually they're on their deathbed. Sometimes they have a recovery, but right, it means they're very ill. Okay, so, yeah, go ahead, please. I think it's very, very telling that specifically he's juxtaposing Rabbi Akiva, who is the stricter version of reality here. Rabbi Yeshua, he turned bad into good. Rabbi Akiva was the Rabbi of Elisha, and Elisha was the Rabbi of Rabbi Yeshua. Or Rabbi, where does Rabbi Akiva stand in the story? No. He's the generation before Rabbi, well, Rabbi Meir, essentially Elisha and Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Akiva are more or less contemporaries. And Rabbi Meir is essentially the next generation. What you pointed out is very interesting. We can't go into this. It's extremely interesting because Rabbi Akiva, every place else in rabbinic literature, is known as the person who believes in transformation. And in fact, in the Bavli version of this, Rabbi Akiva takes the other position. So it's very interesting that here Rabbi Akiva, or at least Elisha thinks that Rabbi Akiva right, is taking the you can't change this. But it's parallel. Somebody asked there about the father. The father here, you read the father as, you know, he thought the house was going to burn down. So he said, okay, if my son lives, this is what I'm going to do. It's not, but Elisha's also, Elisha, the son of this man, is also interpreting it the way he's interpreting Rabbi Akiva as a more strict thing. That the father was doing it not from love, like Rabbi Yeshua, but from fear. This right. Okay, I can see everybody understands the story. Now we're going to talk about the content. Great. So I'm going. To, we could talk about this until Shavuos, right? Because this is very rich. But I actually, I'm going to focus us in on what I want to talk about, and then some of these other things will come up. So as I said, when I kind of started thinking about this story and noticed the very unusual way in which Rabbi Meir uses that verse and enacts the scene. I started wondering whether there's more going on here right, between this story and the Book of Ruth. And when you start asking those questions, generally you find something, but I think it's actually there. So I'm going to share with you what I start to think about. We'll see how far we get. I'm going to mention probably three core parallels that I see between these stories, and if we're lucky, we may get to a fourth, but we may not. So the first one actually is maybe the simplest one, but something that I found very powerful which is that if you think of the first chapter of the Book of Ruth, and you think of the first act of this story, when I teach rabbinic stories, I often imagine them, which is why I'm using the word act, I often imagine them as being on stage. I imagine them as a play. Not that I'm in the theater, I could not even tell you. I could, but I'd be embarrassed to tell you the last time I played. But nevertheless, there's something very staged about these things. And if you just imagine right, the kind of split screen, here's one stage of the Book of Ruth, first chapter, and here's the other stage, the first act of this story, they're actually very similar scenes in that in both you have an older character traveling across the stage and a younger person, a daughter-in-law on one hand, a disciple in the other hand, choosing to accompany them as they walk across the stage. And the entire first act in both stories is a conversation between this younger person who is accompanying 
the older person as they are walking across the stage. And in both stories, they're not just walking across the stage, but that stage is situated between two places. One place is the place of one of the characters, and the other place is the place of the other character. So in the Book of Ruth, we're traveling between Moab on the one hand, which is the place where Ruth belongs. She is Ruth the Moabite, right? Naomi keeps trying to convince her to go back to Moab, where she belongs. And on the other side of the stage, off stage, right, is Bethlehem, right? Bethlehem, in the land of Israel, which is Naomi's place. And they're traveling between these two zones, right? They're traveling from Moab to the land of Israel. And Nomi's perspective is that her proper place is the land of Israel, Bethlehem, and Ruth's proper place is back in Moab. And we're following along as they walk together in this first scene from one place to another, and they're in conversation with each other, wondering what will happen, right? Will Ruth continue and cross that border into Nomi's place, into Bethlehem, or will she at some point turn back, as Orpah does? Now, when you go to the other stage, it's a very similar scene. You have these two places. You have the Beit Midrash on the one hand, which is Rabbi Meir's place. And actually, once upon a time, was also Alicia's place, but it's not his place anymore. Right? On the other side of the stage, you have what's outside of the Shabbat boundary, which is Alicia's place, but it's not Rabbi Meir's place. Right? And you're following these two characters right, between the Beit Midrash and the outside of the Shabbat boundary as the younger character right, is accompanying the older character, and we're waiting to see what's going to happen when they get to that boundary. Will Rebbe Mayer be able to cross over? Will Alicia choose to turn back? Right, what's going to happen? So in both stories, you have this, this scene of accompaniment, this dialogue between the older and the younger character, as they are traversing this kind of intermediate place, the zone, between these two places, one of which belongs to one of the characters and one of which belongs to the other character, and we're wondering what's kind of going to happen as they continue on their way together. So you have, number one, this theme of accompaniment, and number two, this theme of, of these places, right? the, the places on each side of each stage, right? the place which properly, properly belongs to each character. And in addition, in both stories, you have this question or this motif of, really a theme, of return. Right? In the book of Ruth, of course, the word lashuv comes up an endless number of times. It comes up 12 times just in the first chapter. Naomi is going to return to Beit Lechem. Right? She enjoins her daughters-in-law to return to Moab. Ruth says, no, I'm going to return with you to Beit Lechem. Right? The word occurs over and over and over. Ruth will continue to be identified in the book as the woman who returned with her mother-in-law from Moab. The theme of return is over and over and over and over again in the book of Ruth. And the theme of return comes up as well in our story. Where does it come up? So you already mentioned one time it comes up when Alicia, at the end of the first act, tells Rabbi Meir, enough, here is the Shabbat boundary. And Rabbi Meir says to him, and won't you return? What is Chazar? When the characters are talking to each other, the word they use is lachzor, to return. When verses are quoted that talk about return, the word is lashuv, shuvu bani. Tashev anosh daka vatomer shuvu bani adam, right? The same word that is used to return, for to return in the book of Ruth. Actually, the parallel, there's a parallel to this story, almost verbatim parallel in Midrash Rabbah, the book of Ruth, where it's even stronger because there, 
instead of Elisha saying to Rabbi Meir, Dayacha Meir, enough Meir, right? he actually says, Chazor Bacha, return. And he says, won't you return? So you have the, the notion of return in both stories that occurs again and again. Who will return? Who will be able to return? What does return mean? Does return mean being able to come back to your former place? Will Elisha be able to come back with Rabbi Meir to his place, to the Beit Midrash, to return to the place that he came from, or won't he? Will Rabbi Meir be able to cross over that boundary with Elisha? No, he can't, because it's the Shabbat boundary. So if people accompany each other, will they be able to return or not? And that's where actually the stories diverge. Because whereas Ruth, in that first act, says to Naomi, where you go, I will go, where you rest, I will rest. Basher Talini Alin, that which kind of prefigures or, or prefigures is the wrong word, kind of pre, right, foreshadows <coughs> the Lini Halayla, the stay of the night. Only death will separate us. Some people translate that, not even death will separate us. But what you're saying is in this life, I will always accompany you. Whereas what happens in our Agadah is that even though Rabbi Meir constantly tries to accompany his master, he constantly comes up against a boundary that he cannot cross. So in the first act, he comes up against the Shabbat boundary, which he cannot cross, but Elisha will cross. In the second act, he once again hears from this kind of Greek chorus, which is also interesting. Both the Book of Ruth and the Zagadah have a Greek chorus, right? Just people who are constantly commenting on the action. So the Greek chorus comes to him again at the beginning of the second act, and he says, your master is very sick, and he goes to visit him. But again, he can't actually stay with him. There, Elisha crosses over into the realm of death. And then in that third time that he hears the... And Greek chorus come and say, your master's grave is on fire and he goes to visit him. And he wants to redeem him and he says, but I can't redeem you right now. But in that future time, I will be able to cross over to where you are and I will redeem you. So he's constantly trying to accompany his master and yet constantly comes up against a boundary that Alicia crosses that he cannot cross. As opposed to, and here's a difference between the stories, Ruth, who you would think cannot cross over. She's a, she's a Moabite and she will not be able to cross over. And Naomi tells her that and nevertheless, she actually is able to find a way to cross over and return with her mother-in-law instead of going back to her place on that side of the stage actually goes off stage Beit Lechem right, to follow her mother-in-law and returning with her to her. Yes, please. I think in Ruth, it's obvious with the hero. I mean, we don't suspect that Naomi is the hero. So first of all, I, I, I don't agree with you. I think the Book of Ruth has three heroes. Naomi is a hero. Ruth is a hero, and Boaz is a hero. Right. I mean, you can Naomi You can. Uh, I, I can't, and I'll tell you why. Because it's very interesting what happens in that story. In the first chapter, Naomi is so depressed. She can't actually, I mean, she manages to drag herself back home. And when the townspeople see her, as Zotna, me, when it's Naomi, she says, don't, don't even call me Naomi, I have nothing left. I have absolutely nothing left. Which actually isn't true. She does have something left. She has root, but she, as far as she's concerned, she has absolutely nothing left. And she's completely hopeless in the first chapter. In the second chapter, Ruth takes initiative and she says, you know, I'm going to go green. And she says, go ahead. And Ruth is the active person, as Ruth is in the first chapter. But all of a sudden, at the end of the second chapter, when Naomi hears whose field Ruth has gleaned in, and she hears that Boaz has been nice to Ruth, she realizes that Boaz is a redeemer, all of a sudden, Naomi steps to the fore in a completely different way. She comes to realize that actually she has a role to play in the story. At the beginning of chapter 3, she's the one who hatches the plot 
that actually enables the story to work out. And Boaz becomes a hero because he's the one who steps up to do what needs to be done in order to enable this redemption place. And he is the agent of redemption both for Ruth and actually also for Naomi as becomes the end of the chapter. So one of the lovely things about the book actually is that it's not any one of them. It's the three of them, the three of them together. We'll see. We'll see. We're just scratching the surface. I don't know yet. Well, let's talk. Okay, but so hold on a second. I just want to want to finish the the recap the first point before we go on to the other points. Okay? Well, that's, that's just one point. It was one point with A B C D. Right, it was one point. Right, which is that there's something about these two stories which, in a very deep way, is about accompaniment and the question. It's I mean, it's more than one, right? But it's it's about the parallel between those opening acts, right? The younger person accompanying the older person. And in dialogue with them, each person trying to figure out where they can go. Can they return home? Or is there something that blocks them? Can they continue to accompany their master, their mother-in-law? Right? Or is this something that will block them? And how you can either find your way back to the place that speaks to your soul, or find yourself blocked in that place. That, that's, I think, a, a very powerful parallel between the two. Why do you say that Rabbi Meir, in the second part, the Shabbos is clear that when the grave story, Shem doesn't agree with an eyeball. As soon as he said that... Great, we'll get to that later. That's true, but that's not what he thinks is going to happen, right? It is interesting. Okay, one second. It is interesting, and we'll get back to that. The fire actually subsides right away. We'll get back to that. But that's not what he says. He says, rest now. Just like Boaz says, I can't help you right away. I can't promise you anything right now. I, we'll see what happens in the morning. And he interprets that now, stay the night as opposed to the morning, as this world and the next world, right? If God will redeem you now, great. But if not, at some point, I will come to you, right? Whatever that means. In fact, the next paragraph, which we didn't read, has that same anonymous they say to Rabbi Meir, in the next world, who are you going to visit first? Your father or Elisha? So it's clear that he can't really be with him yet. Uh, to me, that's clear. But you're right. It is interesting that the fire subsides right away. How can that be when he says, he wait till morning? Oh, hold on. We'll, we'll get there. Okay. Hold on. Yeah. She's not going to harder for her to go. Right. It's interesting in your parallels. She's successful. Right. It's harder for Alicia to go back to something that once was his home than it is for Ruth to transmute from going back, shuvu benotai, go back home to Moab, and she instead, La Shoes, right, goes back to a place which was never her home. Right. But the term that is used is she's returning, right? She's returning as Naomi is returning, but it's to a place that she never went. And that really highlights that. What enables somebody to cross over or what, what, what blocks them? Okay, so that, I, let's leave that first thing at that. Right? The parallels, of course, generate differences, but there's a very deep parallel there, I think, between the kind of staging and the notion of accompaniment. Okay, let me get to the second parallel, which, which is so obvious that it needs to be said, which is that both stories have a character who is established, actually, by divine word as being an outsider who can never be incorporated back into the people. In the Haggadah, in the rabbinic story, Elisha has been essentially cast out. I mean, he's taken himself out. He has been deemed as somebody who can never return. He has heard the voice say, return wayward children, except for this one person. And God accepts the return of everybody, welcomes the return of everybody, except for this one person. And Ruth, the story does not make this clear, but as we read Ruth within our canon, we are well aware that Ruth is a Moabite, 
And the verse in Deuteronomy 24 says, An Ammonite, a Moabite, can never come into the community of God, can never join the Jewish people. Now, it's true that way after the fact, the rabbis reinterpret that as a male Ammonite and Moabite can't, but a female Ammonite and Moabite can. That's all very nice. That's because they read the book of Ruth. Okay? But in the book of Ruth, they did not know that. So you have in both stories somebody who by divine word is excluded from the community, and yet who in each story, through the actions of the other characters, is actually reincorporated into the community. And so there's a very strong parallel between these two stories. The core question in each story is, will this character, who cannot become a part of this people, who cannot return, be able to be reincorporated into the community. So that's a second parallel, which we will return, and we will, we will get back to. But I want to mention a third parallel, which will relate to this second issue of how the person gets it. And this is something that is very deep about the Book of Ruth, and I think ends up illuminating our agenda. So first, let's, so an important element in the Book of Ruth has to do with what God does in the book, and what people do in the book, and what is the relationship between what people do in the book and what God does in the book. Okay, so let's start with God. What does God do in the book of Ruth? Where does it say that? They die. They die. In verse 5, chapter 1, verse 5, they both die. And they have bad names. They have bad names. Sickness and destruction or something like that, right? They, they have very unfortunate names and they both die. It does not say God kills them. Right, so one thing it says about God, what verse is that? Verse 6, right? In verse 6 in chapter 1, Naomi and her daughters-in-law begin to return from the land of Moab to Beit Lechem because Naomi heard that God had taken note of his people to give them bread. Now, it's not actually the narrator saying that. She hears that, but it sounds like that is the narrator's perspective. She heard the news. What is the news? That God had taken note of his people to give them bread. That's one thing God does. What else does God do in this book? Maybe curses Naomi. Where does it say that? Okay, so in chapter 1, verse 21, she says, when the townswomen say, wow, is this Naomi? She says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, bitter, because God was very bitter to me. And then she says, I went out full, but God returned to me empty. Don't call me Naomi. God, Anabi, it's a play on Naomi, right? God testified against me, and the Almighty did bad to me. Now, this is interesting. It's not the narrator saying this. It's Naomi saying this. It's interesting. It's actually the only time in this book that the word ra, bad, appears. In the rest of the book, characters over and over and over again talk about God doing good. It's only in this moment where Naomi understands God as having done bad to her. She actually said that earlier. She says to her daughter's mother, God's hand was against me. So that's Naomi's perspective. It's not the narrator saying that. There's one other thing that the narrator says that God did in this book. Naomi says at first, my lot is far more bitter than the hand of Right, Naomi, right. as I said, Naomi said, she was more right that God's hand was against the word bitter is in that part. Yeah, in, right, in exactly, bitter there as well. Right? Same reflection, right? She feels so embittered, and she understands this God to be the source of it. It doesn't actually say that. Again, when her husband dies, when the young men die, it does not actually say that God right. killed them. As the Torah knows, knows how to say. There's one other thing that the narrator says God does. Yes, exactly. In chapter 4, right, famously, it's the only time in the Tanakh that this locution is used after Boaz and Ruth get married. In chapter 4, verse 13, it says, 
Vatele Ben, which literally translates, God gave her conception, and she bore a son. And that's the only time the Tanakh it says that. Usually it says Vatahar, and she conceived. Yes. I'm saying the root to conceive, right? Conceive is always the woman conceived, not God gave conception. Hashem Pukarat Sava, and God visited the earth, is alluded to in that first chapter. Hashem Pukarat Amola It's the same, it's the same language, right? God noticed, took note of his people to give them bread. They use that word hakaf. But here, right, God gave her, and the usual way to be would be she conceived, or God gave her conception. So what's interesting is that the only two things that the narrator seems to attribute to God, the only two actions that the narrator attributes to God are, one, to put an end to the famine, bring fertility to the land, and the other is to give conception to root, which is to bring fertility to a person. There's actually a very nice line at the beginning of Tractate Ta'anit in the Babylonian Talmud, which says that God has a huge key ring. His keys, like his and his key ring. But God actually lets people, lends these keys to a lot of people. For example, are there any doctors in the room? Doctors? Healthcare professionals? <laughs> okay. No actual doctors in this room? Are these people Jewish? What? Okay. Healthcare professionals. Raise your hand if you're a healthcare professional. Great. So, so God gives the key of healthcare to you, right? Any teachers in the room? And God gives the key of teaching to you. Any construction people in the room? This isn't. <laughs> Builders? Real estate people? None of those? Lawyers? Great. So God gives you the key of justice. I'm not sure that's what lawyers do, but let's say. Okay. <laughs> but the Thomas says there's three keys that God never hands over to anybody else. Anybody know what those three keys are? Right, the key of birth, birth, rain, and resurrection. Birth, rain, and resurrection. Right, rain and resurrection are both in the second blessing of Yeshua. Right, they're related to each other. Rain, birth, rain, and resurrection are all three like life giving, like creating life where there is no life. So fertility of land and fertility of people are things that our rabbinic tradition understands as being things that are only in God's hand. God never hands over those keys to anybody else. But other keys, God hands over to people. And that's actually... I was going to say that creating a child is man, the woman, God. And that's the female aspect. Without God in the mix, there's no child. Right. The Book of Ruth actually very much has that same perspective, right? Because the only two things attributed to God, again, are fertility, right? Fertility of the land, right? There's no more famine. And fertility of person, right? That Ruth conceives and bears a son. But the fascinating thing about the Book of Ruth is that whereas God does very few things, people talk about God endlessly. There is no other book where people talk about God as much as in this book. People are constantly talking about God. Now, leave aside Naomi, who in the first chapter sees God as the author of these bad things that happened to her. Outside of that, in this book, people are constantly talking about God doing good things. And even Naomi, in chapter 1, actually talks about God doing good things when she urges her daughters in to go back home. She says to them in chapter 1, verse 8, May God do chesed. May God treat you with kindness as you have done with those who are now dead and with me. People are constantly blessing each other in God's name. There's only one other place in Tanakh where people greet each other in God's name in that way. And people wish that God would do these wonderful things. Here Naomi says, may God do chesed to you. Then in verse 9 she says, may God grant that each one of you finds menucha, finds rest or security. 
in a new husband's home. People are constantly blessing other people with God. May God do chesed, may God do this, may God do that. Exactly. In the end of chapter 2, when Naomi finds out that Boaz is the one who treated Ruth so well in the field, she says in chapter, chapter 2, verse 20, Baruch Hu Lashem, blessed is he, blessed is Boaz to God. And then this verse, the rest of the verse which I'm about to read, has generated more scholarly articles than one could count in a lifetime, because the syntax of this is actually very difficult. So I will read this verse in Hebrew and then in English. A blessed is he, blessed is Boaz to God, who has not left off his chesed with the living and with the dead. Who has not left off his chesed? So one way to read that is, blessed is Boaz to God, God who has not left off his chesed to the living and the dead. Another way to read it is, blessed is Boaz to God, Boaz who has not left off his chesed to the living and the dead. Now there are good arguments, good syntactic arguments, and parallels to this verse elsewhere in the Tanakh that support each of these contentions. And some have argued that it's actually intentionally ambiguous, right? Is it Boaz who has not left off his chesed with the living and with the dead? Or is it God who has not left off his chesed? Maybe actually it's both. But what's interesting about this is the notion of not leaving off your chesed with the living and with the dead right, relates back to that verse that we just read in chapter 1, where Naomi says to her two daughters-in-law, right, may God repay you with chesed like the chesed that you have done with the dead and with me, meaning with the living and with the dead. So we have the very interesting thing that's going on in this book. That number one, God actually does very few things. God only does the things that only God can do. Number two, that people attribute things to God all the time. People wish to other people that God do these wonderful things for them. And number three, that what ends up happening actually is that it's people who do the very things that people wish that God will do. And I want to give two little examples of that. We saw this already with Chesed. I want to give you two more concrete examples of that. One is, again, going back to chapter 1, when Naomi, in verse 9, says to her daughters, May God grant that each of you find rest, security, a home, each one in the home of her husband. Meaning, may God grant you each a good new husband. Now, who actually ends up finding Minucha for one of these young women in this book? Well, it's actually Naomi, right? And she uses that language at the beginning of chapter 3. At the beginning of chapter 3, she speaks to Ruth, and she says, this is in verse 1, she says, Biti, hallo avakesh lach manoach I am seeking for you, right? I'm going to work out for you, that you get a manoach. Right? A manoach is a kind of personified Minucha. The person who will give you minucha, the person who will give you rest, security, a home. And she then reveals this plot that will enable Ruth to get a husband. So in chapter one, she blesses her. She says straight out in chapter one, I have no capability of getting you a husband. I can't have any more children. And either way, you would probably wait for them to grow up. And so there's no way I can afford you a husband. Let God do that for you. And all of a sudden in chapter three, she understands herself to be the person who has the capacity to fulfill the blessing that she imagined that God would fulfill. Now there's, there's several other examples of this, but I want to focus on one more, which will bring us right back to the verse that's at the center of our Agatha. 
which is something that Boaz says to Ruth when he meets her in chapter 2. Boaz meets Ruth, and he finds out who she is, and he goes over to talk to her. And this is chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And he says, I heard the amazing thing that you did for your mother-in-law. And in verse 12, he blesses her. He says, may God repay what you have done. May you have a full compensation from God. May the Lord God of Israel pay you back. And then he says something about the Lord God of Israel. The Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. So Boaz understands God to be the one under whose wings Ruth has come to seek refuge. And then, and I heard this following point from my husband many years ago, though he has a different interpretation of it than I do, but then in chapter 3, when Ruth goes out to the threshing floor in that nighttime scene, and Boaz says, who are you? In verse 9, she says, Anochi Ruth amatecha, I am Ruth your handmaid, ufarasta knafecha al amatcha ki goel ata. They spread out your knafecha, translated garment, but of course, it's the very same word as God's wings, right? Spread out your wings slash garment. It's the very same language. Spread out your garment over your handmaid because you are redeemed. So what she's asking Boaz to do, since Boaz is the person, right? he is the one, and you ask who are the heroes, right? He is the one who's able to understand, who has a vision of God. Who is God? Well, for Boaz, God is the one who offers refuge to needy, destitute immigrants. He recognizes that, and because he recognizes that, Ruth understands that he will be able to recognize that it's his job to do that very act, that it's his job to offer refuge to a needy, destitute stranger. She knows he'll be able to understand that it's his job to do that because he understands that it's God's job to do that. Right? And people in this story have a certain kind of shared vision of God and of God's attributes that then enables them to aspire to act the way they understand God is acting. And I would say, kind of one step further, that the way we might understand human and divine behavior in this book is that it's not just that people kind of imitate the actions and attributes that they understand God is having, but that when people enact these behaviors or these attributes, it is in fact God acting through them. God does act in this book. There's only two things he does directly, right? Those two keys that he doesn't hand over to anybody else. But God does act in this book. People understand God to be acting in this book to the degree that people enact what they believe God does. So we might say, we might say, hey, who does the chesed in this book? Well, people do the chesed in this book, but in doing the chesed in the book, they are in fact enacting God's chesed. God is doing chesed in this book through people. Who spreads the garment over Ruth? It's Boaz who spreads the garment over Ruth. And we might say, actually, that it is through Boaz that God, in fact, is the one who extends God's refuge-giving wings to the destitute, needy stranger. Right? It's both. It's not one or the other. It's not because God doesn't act, people do act. That's the book of Esther. In the book of Ruth, if God does act, God acts through the actions. Completely different vision of human and divine behavior. Yeah. Just like in chapter 4, the women are saying it's God that found the Goel. Exactly. It is God who gave you a Goel this day. God? Where's God? Right? It's Ruth and Naomi and Boaz who, in concert with each other, have figured out who has to be the Goel, how to get him to realize that he's going to be the Goel, 
and I need to be the goel. And yet, it is then attributed to God. This is not a contradiction. It's in fact, that's right, God has granted you a goel right through the actions of these people. Right? So it's a very particular understanding of human and divine behavior. Hold on one second. I want to bring this back now to the Agadah. I think the, the Agadah, the story, the rabbinic story. Because I think you have something very similar going on um, in the story. Let's focus in on that scene, right? That climactic scene where Rabbi Meir <laughs> speaks in Boaz's words and does this act of extending his garment, spreading his garment over his master like Boaz was asked by Ruth to do and essentially does. And this gets to the point that you were making, that you were raising before. Rabbi Meir says something unbelievably audacious in this verse. Rabbi Meir is well aware that God has said, according to Elisha's report, which Rabbi Meir takes to be an accurate report, Rabbi Meir is well aware that God has said that he refuses to allow Elisha to return. And yet, he makes it clear that he doesn't think God will accept him in his explication of this verse, because he says, remember, Boaz had said, there's a closer redeemer than me. Well, we'll see in the morning if he wants to redeem you good, and if not, I will. And Rabbi Meir butchers that verse intentionally and right, understands it. If the good one will redeem you, that's fine. But he may not redeem you. And if he doesn't redeem you, I'm going to do it anyway, right? So he's doing two different things in that explication. One thing is that he is challenging God. He's going against a possibility of what God might want. Maybe it's really true that Shuvu Banim, return children, does not extend to Elisha. And if that's true, tough God, I'm going to do it anyway. I may not be able to do it right away, but at some point, at some point, I'm going to rejoin Elisha and I'm going to redeem him, whether or not you like it, God. So on the one hand, he is going against what God has said. On the other hand, he has a certain understanding of God. What is his understanding of God? That God is good. And he not only has that understanding of God, he quotes a verse. It's a proven, right? How do I know that God is good? Because there's a verse. And the verse is, interestingly, Tov Hashem God is good to everybody. Ruachamav al kol masa. Actually, in Psalm 145, which we know as Ashrei, the word kol comes up 17 times. It's, there's 21 verses, right? Because it's alphabetical minus one. Okay, 21 verses, the word kol comes up 17 times. It's the key word of that psalm. So it's not just that God is good, but I read the psukim, Rabbi Meir says. I read psalms. I say ashray a couple times a day, maybe even three times a day. And I know that it's not just that God is good. That's fine. But it's beyond that. That God is good to everybody. That is my understanding of God. Furthermore, thinking of the two verses earlier that include the word shuvu, Whereas Elisha heard, return children except for you, Rabbi Meir is familiar with the verse in Psalm 90, where it says, Shuvu b'nei Adam, return people, all of humanity has the opportunity to return, the way Rabbi Meir reads that verse. So there's two different things going on here in Rabbi Meir's analysis of the situation. On the one hand, God may refuse to redeem Elisha, in which case Rabbi Meir says, I'm going to do it. And on the other hand, the thing that Rabbi Meir says that he will do despite God, is actually enacting the attribute that he understands God to have, which is Tov Hashem Lakol. So in challenging God, he's actually fulfilling what God's supposed to do. It's as if he's saying to God, listen God, you're supposed to be the Tov here. I suggest that you do that, but if you don't, I'm going to do it anyway, and when I do it, when I in fact spread my cloak over the grave and put out the fire, who ends up putting out the fire? 
in the story. It's not so clear, but what I would say is actually both of them do, right? Because as I said before, I forget, uh, what's your name? Pesh. Okay, as I said before, Pesh, it sounds from the story that Rabbi Meir imagines that this is something that will be delayed into the distant future. Not only in the future will be, will be able to redeem it, and yet the fire goes out right away. Now, by the way, the spreading of the garment is very beautiful, right? Because the spreading of the garment is both the enactment, the symbolic redemption, imitating what Ruth asked Boaz to do in the book of Ruth, but it's also what we were all taught in the second grade to do when there's a fire, <laughs> which is you put the blanket over the He's actually physically like, snuffing out, like, smothering the fire. And it happens actually right away. So God, in essence, is responding to Rabbi Meir. God is sort of, in a way, listening to this and saying, you're right. God doesn't have authority. Right. I am good to everybody. And through you, Rabbi Meir, I am, in fact, agreeing to redeem Alicia. So it's both Rabbi Meir doing it in challenging God, but in challenging God through calling up God's attributes of Tov Lachol, it is actually God doing it as well. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to see it as a challenge. It's precedent throughout the Gemara and Somchem Alabat called Sadi Gozer. So both Alicia both Alicia Benavoya and Rabbi Meir know that it's not such a stretch. It's, to see him as challenging is kind of, you know, as from our perspective, the perspective that they had you see in other stories, it's like they have this power. God is laughing. It's funny when I, like God maybe wants Rabbi Meir to be the one who figures it out. Maybe. And then he rewards him right away. He says, you got it. And that may be true, but I think it's also true. And I, I wouldn't, you know, some people interpret the story and say, well, you know, Alicia ben thinks he heard that, but maybe he didn't really hear it accurately. But I don't think that's the perspective of the story. Alicia ben believes he heard it, and Rabbi Meir believes it too. Or he wouldn't say... But you're told... That's correct. Don't, don't believe it here. Believe it but, it does, but, but it doesn't say that. He does not say to Alicia ben in the first scene, ah, we don't pay attention to heavenly voices as could be said because it's said elsewhere in the Talmud. He doesn't say here, hey God, look, do me a favor, put the fire out. You know, he's a nice guy and, you know, we don't really pay attention to the divine voice. He doesn't say that. He says... You don't do what I want. If you don't do what I will. Now, you're right. There is a notion of challenging that. There's a deeper lesson. What's happening with Alicia? He doesn't believe that God will forgive him. There's a relationship thing. So, Yashu, Mayor, it's showing him that it never ends. It's this father figure that God is, this authority, this thing that you can't, like, it's not real. It's really up to you, and it's endlessly good, and that's the whole... I, 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 think, I think yes and, right? That, that's what I'm trying to say. I think yes and. Clearly, Rabbi Meir believes in this attribute of good. Clearly, he believes in the possibility of tshuva, of return. It's clear. He says it over and over, and he quotes Sukim for that as well. But I think clearly he also believes that for some reason, God has said that Elisha can't return. Otherwise, this last scene makes no sense. No, no, but right? maybe I'm not explaining Yeah. God has said this, but Rabbi Meir, whose vision is, if it's good, the axiom is it's good. Yes. So that if it looks bad, it must be up to me to figure out some I, I agree. Hermetic way. I agree with you completely. I, but the disagreement I have with you, yeah. as such, is is just that I think you're aligning the difficulty of the moment. In other words, I think there are really two contradictory things happening. There's both a challenge of God, and yet it's a challenge of God that makes sense from within the fact that Rabbi Meir believes that he has a certain Torah. He reads Torah. 
And that's really actually what this story is about. And this, of course, goes beyond the Book of Ruth, because in the Book of Ruth, nobody's actively interpreting Torah. But this Agadah is completely an Agadah about how we read Torah. This should not be missed. The Agadah starts with two individuals having a conversation about Torah. And it sounds like this kind of, how do you read this puzzle? How do you read this puzzle? That's not how you read this puzzle. I read it this way. But actually, we find out very soon in that first act that how you read Torah is deeply personal, right? It's not just I read the preposition as meaning from the beginning and you read it as being more than, let's agree to disagree. No, no, no. We know that they read it in a deeply personal way because by the time they get to the second puzzle, Alicia Ben Abuya says, this is my story. You can't read it your way. You can't read the end is better than the beginning because it's not true. Look at me. The only true way to read that puzzle, Alicia Ben Abuya says, is that you can only have a good outcome if it was good from the beginning and that's what messed up in my life. This is something deeply personal about how people read Torah in this story. And it has to be true. It has to be true to your experience. And they have different understandings. They have different experiences and different understandings and therefore they read Torah differently. And what happens in this story is that at the end of the day, and we, we can't go deep enough into this, and this also relates to the, the middle section that we skipped, so take it home and read it, but that at the end of the day, and here's actually another parallel with the book of Ruth, which we also can't... You can count it any way you want. No, you said that you said at the beginning, you said the I think, uh, yeah, whatever you want to count it. I don't know, four or five, whatever. <laughs> no, no, but I... Okay, we're going we're gonna to get what you wanted. What you were we'll never get to everything I want. Life is... It doesn't matter, however you count it. But another thing about the Book of Ruth that we won't be able to get to, so don't necessarily count it, is that in the Book of Ruth also, there's a theme of goodness. Only in the first chapter, as I said, do we talk about badness, and it's only Naomi reflecting on her situation. And the rest of the book always moves toward good. Good, 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 good. And at the end of the book, what do the neighbors say, right? She is better for you, even more good for you than seven sons. It moves toward goodness. And that's what happens in the Agadah as well. That they, it's not, it is true that Alicia and Rabbi Meir have two different perspectives of life, but the Agadah has its own perspective. And the Agadah's perspective is actually aligned with Rabbi Meir, that God is a God of goodness. And therefore, if you don't see God enacting that goodness, it becomes your job to enact that goodness. So what I'm saying is that there's both a challenge to God and at the same time, that challenge to God comes from a place of kind of getting at what is it that God really wants. There too, right, you have a parallel, canto however, however you want, but there too, you have a parallel to the book of Ruth. Because how can it be that Ruth can actually be incorporated into the Kahal when Ruth is a Moabite? But there's some sense in this book that this is a person who is so good and so much kind of follows in the footsteps of the matriarchs, right? There's many, many words and phrases and sentences in this book that echo the story of Rebecca coming back to the land to marry Yitzchak, right? That Ruth is the kind of person who simply has to be incorporated into the people of Israel. And that Ruth is a person in such need, and God is the person who extends himself to people in need, and therefore people have to do that. So what I'm saying is it's both a violation and, at the same time, the truest fulfillment of what God really wants. And that's what I'm trying not to elide, right? That it's the very, what will say, that it's the very challenge to God, which is, at the same time, right, the deepest fulfillment of the character's understanding of what it is that God is really about. God, you are good, and therefore I'm not listening to you when you say chutz me. There is no chutz me because you said lakol, right? And therefore, you may say everybody but Alicia, but I know what you really want, 
I'm going to violate your word because what you really want is to say nobody is excluded from my goodness. Yeah. And really, at the end of the day, what you join us that you started out with sort of the imperative rebel, the number of reasons, and his and his loyal student, though, ends up being, as it were, just as rebellious and just as radical as his teacher. And that, to me, is a shock. Where how how this this now this relationship is really playing out, and I certainly never thought of it. But through that rebelliousness, which is and isn't rebelliousness, right? Because his rebellion means he's following God's word, right? Through that particular act of rebellion, he's able to incorporate both of them, bring both of them back into that place to which Alicia was not able to return. He ends up returning. Yeah. I just wanted to say this just strikes me in some way as a fulfillment of Doshin Yu, right? That they are trying in some way to emulate what they think God's real goal is. And so that's what they're doing. They're not listening to maybe what God's saying. They're listening to what God means. Right. And it goes beyond the rules. In fact, the chesed, this is really the chesed of the Book of Ruth, which always goes beyond the rules. I mean, another interesting thing about the Book of Ruth is that it's a book about chesed, and yet it's a book where law is in the background all over the place. So you have the law of leket, of letting poor people gather in your field. You have the law of leveret and marriage. You have the law of redeeming land. You have, you have all sorts of laws in the book, and yet people in the book are constantly going beyond those laws. But they go beyond the laws in the sense that of course, you have to be able to gather in my field because that's what the Torah says. Now you're gathering in my field. Let me intuit what the Torah really wants. The Torah really wants me to give you food. The Torah really wants me to give you water. The Torah really wants me to give you enough food that you can take it back to your mother, right? So it's a book which is sort of embedded in law and yet is constantly moving beyond law to chesed, which cannot be bound by law. And in the case of Mang the Moabite, actually breaks the bounds of law. It actually violates the law in the name of the chesed that the law is really asking you to, to follow, right? I think just a couple of comments because we're almost over time, but go ahead. In playing that a little bit, how she loses the baby, loses the baby becomes Naomi. She doesn't lose the baby. Well, doesn't lose it, but it says very strange, the last line is very strange. Well, it's, it's, well, it's her baby who has also become the act of redemption of Ruth has redeemed Nomi and Nomi's son as well. It has given, in other words, this is not actually a leveret marriage. It goes beyond leveret marriage because he's not the brother. Right? So another act of chesed that goes beyond the demands of the law. But it's leveret-like marriage in the sense that this marriage restores Nomi's lost family. So Nomi is restored. Nomi's sons are restored. Nomi's entire family is restored through this baby. So it's not not Ruth's baby. No, I think that's because that's because this is an act of redemption, not only of her, but of the entire family. Which is what Leverett marriage is not just about giving a child to the widow, right? It's about reclaiming, bringing back into the world by giving a name to the person who was lost. So this Leverett marriage brings back all the people who died in chapter one are essentially brought back through that. So it's not taking it away, right? It's shared. It's a child for everybody. Yeah. So I want to go back to the story where Alicia ben Abuya first said that Rabbi Akiva said that what those words really meant was that Akiva was um, rewarded for his good deeds in the beginning. Right. So with Alicia ben Abuya, the only one through whom I think Hashem who redeemed him is Rabbi Meir, he was Rabbi Meir's red. So the good he did that he taught him. Now Rabbi Meir has all these students in the base Medrash. Right. 
That's redemptive. That's a very nice point. That the redemption happens through the way the student learns Torah, in fact. It's true, I mean, I think this is, you know, it's sort of nice that we read Ruth on Shavuot because if you, for many reasons, but if you think of it, it also relates to this Agadah, as I said before, this Agadah, among other things, it's really a story about how we read Torah. And it's the way this disciple has learned to read Torah that is able to redeem his master. So it's, it's, it is similar in a way to this leveret, right? That you redeem, you bring that person back to the, not the son here, but the spiritual, the spiritual son, the, the disciple. Which is not his Torah actually being used by.